Your Majesty, Your Majesty, Your Royal Highness. A letter from the Prime Minister. Can't it wait? Concerning their Imperial Majesties, the Tsar and Tsarina of Russia. The government is willing to send a ship to bring the Romanovs to safety here in England. The Prime Minister does not wish to do so without your support, public perception and so forth. The war. Shall I go back with a yes? To their rescue? Show it to your mother. Her judgment is unfailingly better than mine. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman, and this is a show that follows the fifth season of the Netflix series The Crown, episode by episode. We take you behind the scenes, speaking to many of the talented people involved and diving deep into the stories. Today we're talking about episode six, titled Epatiev House. Communism has ended in Russia, and President Yeltsin is keen to rebuild ties with the UK. The Queen takes this opportunity to try and resolve a tragic chapter in royal history by giving a proper burial for Elizabeth and Philip's relatives who were murdered in the Russian Revolution. But is a shared goal and a historic trip enough to reconnect the distance that is growing between her and Philip? We'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode, so if you haven't watched episode 6 yet, I suggest you go do that now or very soon. Coming up later, we'll speak to production designer Martin Childs to find out what sets are his favourite to recreate. Uh, we wanted ours to be the basement of the Batiev house 100 years ago, 100 or so years ago. And so we, um, we built it on the soundstage, weirdly, next to Princess Margaret's bedroom. We'll also hear from head of research for The Crown, Annie Salzberger. So where we took a lot of creative licence was saying it's not breakfast, it's snack time. <laughs> And we'll ask writer Peter Morgan about where we find the Queen and Philip at this point in the series. I think it's only reasonable that people discuss the marriage once every 40 years. <laughs> but first, I sat down with the director of this episode, Christian Schwocho, who I was lucky enough to speak to on the first series of this podcast. I wanted to know what it was like coming back to the show after a few years away. A bit like coming home. Nice. I mean, I stayed always in touch with Peter and with Suzanne Mackey, who's one of the producers of the show. And we kept talking. And of course, I watched season four that I didn't work on. But of course, I did other things meanwhile. So yeah. it was like coming back to a family because so many of the great people who work for The Crown are still here. Yeah, it's a massive team effort, isn't it? That's what we've discovered. Why did you want to come back? I got a phone call from Peter Morgan and he said, look, well, this was one of the typical Peter Morgan calls, um, <laughs> to be honest. He said, look, there's this one episode that only you can direct. Wow. So, of course, OK, tell me more. And that was Ipatyev House, uh, episode six of season five, uh, which is quite epic. It's a story 
that's probably something we haven't seen on the crown before. Mm. And it uh, goes back until the year 1917, Russian Revolution. As you know, I'm I'm from East Germany, so Russia has always played an important role in my childhood. And um, without Russia, without Gorbachev, the wall probably would have never come down. So there's a very close relationship to Russia. And now in the current climate, uh, we were shooting when Putin started war against Ukraine, uh, which we didn't know when, when, when Peter reached out, but yeah. the conflict was already quite strong and visible. So I found that fascinating. And then when I asked, okay, what's the other episode? And um, it was Charles's divorce. I felt absolutely intrigued. So it didn't take me long to say, yeah, I'm coming back with pleasure. It's wonderful that Peter, you know, he knows who's who's matched with these stories, with these specific episodes. And, you know, his scripts are are, are, are kind of dense and, and so detailed. But when you read that script for the first time, did you, did it start to kind of create in your head how you saw it and how you wanted this episode to play out? No, that comes very late. Um, I mean, I think I have to read a script more than 20, 30 times before I really start creating a vision. Yeah. I read it first and I, of course, always envision something mm. or actually quite a lot, I guess. <laughs> but that's not the vision that comes to screen later because I need some time to get behind the words and find find myself in, in each of the stories. Ipatyev House is so epic. It actually took me a while to find out it's, yes, it is about Russia. It's about the, um, the, the Romanov's family, but actually it's a story about the Queen. Mm -hmm. And this is something that's not so obvious when you read it for the first or even the fifth time. Mm -hmm. And um, to be honest... I think this clear conclusion I got as we were shooting. Is that all you have to say? Sorry, I'm late, that's all. What for now? Flight to Munich, then to Hamburg for a Duke of Edinburgh award ceremony, followed by a World Wildlife Fund event in Brazil, then Alaska, Canada, then back to London. We managed to combine it all with a couple of carriage driving competitions too. Ah, uh, here it is. Did you ever get tired? Only by sitting still. We're different that way. Yes. More and more different. This episode, Ipatiev House, it's a pretty kind of brutal start to, to this episode. Finally some blood on the crown. <laughs> what was your vision for, for this sequence, for this particular op opening sequence? And the writing was already very explicit without giving away too much, but it's like a two stories kind of fudged together. It's King George and he's on a on a pheasant shoot. As we can see, um, the Romanov's family woken up at night and taken down to a basement, but then a firing squad gets into the room and um, 11 men with guns and they, the family gets killed in a very violent way, as mm. you say. It's very well described in diaries of the soldiers. So we had a very strong reference for that shooting. Wow. So we knew it's the family and and staff. So there were eleven people that need to that should get shot. So it was 
11 Bolshevists with, with guns. So, and each was, each of them was assigned one family member. So it's kind of, um, with the help of Annie Salzberger and research, we kind of got a very clear idea how it had taken place. Wow. What's always important that it's not Bolsheviks who are like dark, angry men, mm -hmm. Tsar family, like an evil dictator who deserves to be killed. I read a lot about the Romanovs and uh, each of the family members. And uh, I also read a lot about the Bolsheviks who were sometimes very young guys. Like we, we put this very young boy kind of into the groups of mm -hmm. the Bolsheviks uh, who he can't say no at this point. He has to kill the youngest daughter. But we see his inner fight because Turn it's something he would, he would probably never tell his mother that he, you know. So there's those, those details that we don't explain, but it's all part of the work and all part of the preparation. Also, what I really loved is working with the Russian actors because all the actors that you see in the sequence are Russian and they were very dedicated to those characters and they wanted to get it accurate and right. And we had long conversations, which is great that we're given this time when we work for The Crown and um, everybody really cares. Mm. I've been on productions where you feel like, okay, Christian, if you want to be accurate, do it. But we don't really care. Yeah. And this is the opposite. Having these two time periods in this one episode, is that a luxury as a director? Or, have, is, it, or is it just more work? <laughs> in the first place, I'm a storyteller. I don't need big costumes, big sets in order to feel happy as a director. Yeah. But beside the storyteller, there's always a little boy who wants to play and who wants a lot of toys. So um, <laughs> the more, the better, but only if the story is right. But it's exciting. It's fascinating. And, you know, I have very strong memories about the early 90s um, and how it felt to live in a communist country that had just overcome communism. So that was exciting to kind of even, you know, I, I'm not from Russia, but some part of it were like recreating my childhood. Wow. I love that. Mr. President, I stand here today as the first British monarch to ever set foot in Moscow. You are the first democratically elected leader in Russian history. Thanks in part to family ties, there has always been a strong bond between our countries. The thing that Peter always says to us is that everything has always got to come back to the crown. Elizabeth, in this particular episode, um, how would you describe her journey in, in this episode? I think we sense very early in that episode that it's a time where Europe is facing a massive change. The fall of communism has been, well, was the biggest political event mm. of those days and those years. And then we see a royal couple that is kind of living a life in the past and The story with Ipatyev House and Boris Yeltsin getting into power and coming to Moscow feels like it could be their thing. It could be Elizabeth and Philip's journey. So she's getting really excited about going there with him, but then has to find out uh, over the course of the episode that he's leading a very, very different life. I think it's a very grown up story mm. with a lot of loneliness and a lot of sadness 
but also I, I guess we do get a bit behind the mechanics, how they actually ended up staying together for so many years. Yeah. How was that for you working with them both? Amazing. <laughs> Amazing because, I mean, I haven't had any bad experience on the ground with anybody. Having such experienced actors, both with a lot of experience in theatre, they both carry so much weight, so much confidence. And of course, because all my lovely colleagues had shaped their characters before I came, it was, there was so much lightness um, about the way we could work together, even though the scenes we're about were so heavy. Mm. It's interesting with Philip as well, because we obviously, you know, as you say, we get these wonderful scenes with him in Imelda, but then we do see almost a different Philip in this friendship and companionship that that develops with Philip and Penny, um, which is a delicate situation to to kind of navigate for many reasons. But how did you approach directing this companionship with the actors? Just like you said, what we were focusing on was the intellectual companionship. We didn't want to suggest that it was anything else. What I like about The Crown, we're not interested in like tabloid scandal. The headlines, yeah. In the headlines, exactly. We'll hear from Christian once more a little later. This episode is full of incredible historic detail, not only from a different century, but from a different country as well. The start of this episode features the shocking execution of the Romanov family in 1918, a story which then connects us to the British royal family today. I sat down with Head of Research for the Crown, Annie Salzberger, to chat more about the historical context of this episode. Where do you want to start with this? I, I know when I was when I got the questions through and I looked at it, I went, "Oh God, I'm going to have to explain World War One. I'm going to have to explain the Russian Revolution, and then I'm going to have to explain how all of the royal families all over Europe come from one gene pool." So, okay, <laughs> big things. Yeah. So we start. It's 1917. World War One started in 1914. Google World War One, but I will just give you the bare bones, which is that Russia and the United Kingdom are allies, along with France, for example, and the United States later, and their enemy is Germany, along with the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Now, 1917 is the year that the House of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, which is what Windsor was known as, becomes the House of Windsor. So right there, you know that there's a lot of German blood in the British royal family, there's obviously a lot of anti-German sentiment because we are at war with them and the decisions made that they can no longer be called by a German name. So they become the House of Windsor. And the anti-German sentiment is a very important part of what happens to the Romanovs. At the same time, because of World War One, you have a massive loss of life in Russia and people are starting to – there has long been obviously socialist um, sort of sentiment and anti-monarchy uh, uprisings over the years and they decide – and Nicholas, the Tsar Nicholas II agrees, it's time to step down and abolish the monarchy. So the monarchy is abolished in, in I think, March of 1917. And that follows the February Revolution, which is the first part of the Russian Revolution. And the provisional government that takes over is, it's not socialist. It's made up of all the aristocrats. It's made up of all the, the wealthy capitalists of Russia. So now the, the question is, what to do with these people? And whilst the provisional government is 
very sensitive to the sort of Romanov situation. At the same time, in response to this government forming, you have what are called Soviets, which are like grassroots community organizations coming up. Those are the socialists. So pretty much quite quickly after the February Revolution, you have these two parallel groups of power, I suppose. Mm. The provisional government is technically in charge. So no one knows if they're really in like full danger yet of any kind of an assassination because the provisional government is quite uh, sympathetic to them. So they start asking around who will have them? This is royal family. The yes. So they, so the, so the provisional government yeah. starts reaches out through their ambassadors to the British government and says, for the duration of the war, would you take the Romanovs in exile? The British government takes the request to the British royal family, and at first they say yes, and then they realize the impact that that would have, which is all it's going to do is bring anti-monarchy sentiment to this country, which already exists. There's a wave of socialism happening. The British people do not want these people here, and the House of Windsor would seriously be in threat. And the government also feels they start to kind of wobble, and they feel like we're at war, Russia's our ally, and by this point, it's very clear that the socialists are probably going to take over. There's going to be a Bolshevik revolution, which happens in October. And if we take them, that's exactly the opposite of what that new government wants from us. And we, we're right now, we need to keep Britain unified at war. We need to keep everybody feeling like this is the right thing to do. The Great War was so shocking. Mm. The loss of life, a whole generation of men, the men who returned, returned to nothing. You know, you, mm. just keeping the British on course was important. But also the Tsarina was, was German. And people felt that she was German in sympathy still to this day. So they feared the consequences of providing these people to exile. They rescinded the invitation. Yeah. So, and then they start, they actually ask France, would you take them? Spain, would you take them? And they're like, nobody wants them. Germany, really, the German royal family was their best bet through this arena, but they can't because they're at war with Germany. So, and the Romanovs at the start don't want to go anywhere. They don't think their lives are at threat. They just think they have to step down from power. They're going to go live in a Dachra somewhere. It's fine. And then the October Revolution happens. The Bolsheviks take over. It is now a Soviet. It's the Soviet Union, a socialist government. And what we have now is the civil war extending from that between the whites and the reds, the red army being the Bolsheviks, the the, the white army being the, you know, sort of former pro-monarchy group, the capitalists, the the wealthy of the country. And now the the, fa- the royal family who had been sort of moved about a bit are placed in Ipatiev House under house arrest. And it is when the white army is approaching, which the Red Army doesn't want to have happen because they will probably free the Romanovs mm-hmm. um, and keep them safe. They decide that they need to be executed. So they take them downstairs. They tell them they're taking a photograph for uh, to prove that they're still in captivity. And they are very, very brutally murdered. It's it was shocking to see the pictures of the the wall after the firing squad. It's a 12-man firing squad. And three of the girls essentially ended up having Kevlar on because they had diamonds sewn into their dresses um, so they could carry some wealth with them if they ever needed it. And it bounced the bullets back off. So it just meant that the firing squad just ramped up. Um, and then they used you know the butts of their guns, the bayonets. So it was an unbelievably brutal assassination. Nobody really knows what has happened. They know, obviously, they've been 
executed, they believe, but there isn't, nobody knows where their bodies are for a very long time. So we we know, for example, that George wobbled King mm-hmm. George V after he made the decision, and everybody agreed with him that it was probably the right decision not to bring them over, but it's his family. So mm-hmm. national national matters are and you know, at odds with personal matters. Yeah. And he tries potentially, you know, this is it's a theory. There is some evidence to to substantiate it, but it still hasn't been fully proven. There are rumors that he tried to make some sort of secret plans for the sort of British early secret services to get him out, uh, to get the family out. And also when he did get other relations after the war finished over, so aunts and uncles who'd obviously survived who mm-hmm. weren't part of the group that was in house arrest, he gave them stipends to live in Britain. He got them citizenship. So clearly he felt a quite a grave responsibility for what had happened. And he is what relation to our queen? He's her grandfather. Yeah. And his wife is Queen Mary, who you met in series one. Mm-hmm. The amazing Eileen Atkins played her. And probably one of the most influential royals in terms of training Elizabeth how to manage her responsibilities and to be the kind of royal that she will set out to be for the rest of her life. How do you how do we know all this this <laughs> detail about about what happened? About what happened. Yeah. So there are, you know, there are actual records from the executioner and Starting in 24, I think there was a book published in 24 that detailed what they believed happened, which was pretty spot on. Apatia House was actually demolished by Yeltsin. He is the sort of like district politician, and they task him with getting rid of it because it's becoming a pilgrimage site in the late 70s for these sort of new wave of monarchists. And the socialist government will not have it. So he demolishes the house. And for many, they think, well, the bodies are actually buried there. They're not. They're buried in the nearby forest. And two years later, these a geologist and a filmmaker who come together and they've read this book from 1924. They looked at this photograph in the book, which just shows what looks to me like a muddy puddle. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are convinced that's the pit with the body. So they go and they investigate it on their own and they find three skulls. And they put them back. Because the political climate at the time would not—no one's going to be thanking them for having found the Romanovs. So um, they put them back, and then they have to wait until essentially the USSR crumbles. And what we know is that when Gorbachev, who's through perestroika, is transforming the Soviet Union uh, into a democracy, when he comes to visit the Queen in 1989 on a state visit, he says, will you come— and visit Russia on a state visit. And she says, yes, but we would like to have some information about the whereabouts of the Romanovs first. And these two guys thank her because they believe without her putting pressure on Gorbachev, they would not have been allowed to dig up the bones. So in How 19- did she know? There are rumors about some of this stuff and, and her grandfather's role in it in the 70s. I think a book is published in 77, but it's 1983 when Kenneth Rose gets access to Windsor Archives and he does a much deeper dive into this story than any other historian has done yet. And he figures out exactly what happened and the order of events in terms of the asylum, the the granting and then the rescinding of the asylum. And the manuscript is presented to her. One of her private secretaries says, you should not let him publish this. They'll hate you for it because it's it suggests that there is a lot of very concrete evidence that your grandfather sealed their fate. And then Fellows, who's her current private secretary, who was quite low down in the private secretary pool at the time, is very pleased. And she, on her own back, her own judgment, just writes on the top, let him publish. 
and refuses to censor any of it. And so from 83 onwards, she knows what her grandfather decided, mm-hmm. the role that of advisor that her grandmother played in that decision as well, you know, and essentially what that they are in some ways obviously responsible for the fate of the Romanovs. So she is aware of all of this, and she is aware that the bones have yet to be found and that the, the house had been destroyed. So when the political situation mm-hmm. turns into their favor in Russia, so 1991, Yeltsin becomes the first elected president of Russia. It changes from the USSR to the Russian Federation. It is now a democracy. There is a attempted coup, which, which we show from the hardliner socialists uh, and communists that fails, and Yeltsin restores Gorbachev. They share power for about six months, but then he sort of uses that as a way to sort of say, your time is done. It's it's really for me to move Russia forward now. And this day after he is brought in as president, inaugurated as president, he authorizes the exhumation of the Romanovs. So these guys, the two guys who found the bones way back in 79, lead a team and they uncover them. And and that's where the start of our, all right, we got to identify each and every body. Philip, turns out you're the key. Story comes in. So, Adi, we've already talked a lot about the historical moments we see in episode six. But as well as historical depth, your team also investigates character detail. And we see so many of these little things pop up in the show. So in our question for today, I've got to ask, does the Queen really eat snacks out of Tupperware? We see her eating cheese and grapes in front of the TV. I love this scene. Here's where we took some creative license. And it's not in the Tupperware. It's what she puts in the Tupperware. So years ago... A fake footman joined the palace, essentially, to become an insider to take pictures for the newspapers. And one of the pictures he took was the breakfast room. And in it, you realized there's things like cereal and granola and things like that in Tupperware. So where we took a lot of creative license was saying, it's not breakfast, it's snack time. (laughs) But yes, she uses Tupperware. I just love the idea of the queen having, like, guys... (laughs) It's snack time. <laughs> that would be amazing. It's really so that they can be autonomous. Like, they don't need to call in staff all the time. Things can just be there. They can access them when they want to, and they won't go off. Later in the podcast, I'll speak to production designer Martin Childs. But before that, in this episode, we really see the growing distance between the Queen and Prince Philip as their differences become more apparent. I sat down with writer Peter Morgan to talk about this. But first, I wanted to find out what it was in particular about the story of Apatiev House that drew him to writing an episode on it. Well, when I found out that Prince Philip had been involved in giving the DNA... So again, you can tell a story about the past or you can tell a story that takes you in a different direction if somehow it intersects with which is how we did the story of the moon landing, because I found a rationale in my own head that said that because the Duke of Edinburgh was a pilot, that he would have had a particular interest in in the astronauts and their, you know, their achievement and their training and, and so forth. And here in this one, when I found out that it had been due to the developments of DNA testing when when the duke of edinburgh had been involved in 
unlocking the mystery of the murder of the Romanovs, I thought, gosh, you know, that's fantastic. But of course, just that alone would have left quite a dry episode. And and in the end, that episode, for all its window dressing about being about the Russian Revolution and the murder of the Romanovs and solving that particular mystery, in the end, it, it turned into an episode about the Queen's marriage and and loneliness within a long marriage in which people are very different and they have different interests. And that's really what the episode is about. The The rest of it is just providing a, an interesting drawing room in which them to have that conversation, you know. it. it and I, I, I also was I'm interested in the Queen's grandmother, Queen Mary. I'm interested in her story and her life. And it was an opportunity for me to also try out what it felt like looking at the palace through the eyes of of people in the, you know in in the very early part of the 20th century you know that was just around the time of the russian revolution and don't forget the set would be exactly the same so the location would be the same they'd be at the same breakfast table mm. as they are now and that appealed to me that you could go back three or four queens in the space of one episode the visual element of this episode and particularly how it starts off as well you know it's 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 got a really incredibly powerful quite brutal tone to it mm. how much of that is kind of you know on the page to start with for you in terms of how you want this episode to kind of hit quite hard to start with as well i think i wanted because don't forget it's intercut with shooting all the birds yeah and and that was always part of the writing the way the director christian schwacho uh directed it it came out i, I think i think the the slaughter of the romanos came out more brutal perhaps than I'd imagined when writing it, but I loved that. Yeah, it's great. And, and I think that's where, you know, I'm working with really particularly gifted directors and, and I'm very rarely on set and they interpret things and they have the freedom to do that. And then, of course, we look at it again in the editing room and there would have been a choice in the editing room whether to take it down or to stick mm. with it. But, I mean, I was really excited about going with it and I don't think I had many comments. When the editor and the director had cut that sequence together, I just looked and went, wow, you know. <laughs> Just one of our many differences. How else are we different? Oh. After 47 years of marriage, we might ask ourselves, how are we still alike? We've got different interests, different passions, different churches. I'm more energetic. More restless. More curious. Your desire for calm, for stability, for silence. Not to question, not to probe, not to... Provoke. Interrogate. Has sometimes left me... What? Lonely. There's a, a fantastic showdown scene between Philip and Elizabeth. Um, in episode six, which mirrors one way back with Claire and Matt on the Royal Yacht. Why did you want to include this? There's almost a similar kind of dialogue almost, similar kind of themes, I guess, in those conversations. And, you know, that, that those two scenes come with about a 40-year gap <laughs> between them. And I think it's only reasonable that people discuss the marriage once every 40 years. Um, uh, but 
because I've always thought that the A storyline of the of of the of the show is their marriage. At least it was certainly in the early seasons. It, I don't think it is now. I don't think it is in seasons five and six. I do think that the the A storyline in five and six is is a succession drama in that sense. You know, is that Charles has suddenly reached this age and he's so capable, confidence and confident. Mm. And I look at it from both sides. I look at it from his side and I, I really feel for him to be, you know, the the flip side of, oh my God, we've just had the longest running monarch. But that means we've also had the longest waiting next in line. And that's not an easy job to, you know, none of them have an easy job because the position we put them in is so invidious. So all of them, whether they're in the in, in the hot seat or if they're just in the outer rings of flunkydom, right? They all have an impossible, an impossible predicament, I think. Mm. And I certainly wouldn't want to have been Prince of Wales for 70 years. And he, season five and season six is him, you know, really pulling at, champing at the bit. Now, when we watch The Crown on Netflix, it can be hard to believe that it's not filmed in the real palaces and places where the scenes are set. When I was lucky enough to go on set, I saw Diana's apartment and it was breathtaking. There was so much detail in every part of the room. And this season is not just based in the UK. We travelled to Egypt, Russia, France and to different time periods as well. There are so many different sets and they're all flawless. At the head of it all is production designer Martin Childs and I was so excited to speak to him about the sets for this season. Martin, welcome back to the podcast. Yay, we got you back. <laughs> At last, it's good to see you again. Yeah, you too. Season five. Yeah. What do you think about when you think of season five? Does it have an overall I th- I th- kind of... I think of, I think of how much we travelled, how much we travelled in the story whilst trying to keep the travel down to a minimum in real life. Yeah. Like, I, what I think about is is how North Yorkshire became Russia and how Spain became Egypt. Um, yeah, that's what I think about. And how I think we probably managed it. We definitely did manage <laughs> it, yeah. We're in a new era with a new cast. Is that's it, right, yeah. Is it always exciting for you when you do have a new, you know, group of, of actors to inhabit these worlds that you help create? That's always extremely exciting because, you know, what I think one of the keys for me is to is to place... Imelda, where we've seen Claire and Olivia in the past. So to actually place them in a place that the audience is used to mm. kind of gives it a bit of bit of visual continuity. And we get to refresh the set, you know. Inevitably, Buckingham Palace gets refreshed but it's in real life, but at the same time, we need to keep it continuously looking the same way but so we can make some subtle changes. Well, and that's one of the great things about having a 50-hour drama <laughs> is that our changes can be subtle. Well, that's the thing, is that I think the layers to this show, you know, we talked about this before and the idea that... Yeah, there are familiar locations that we might have seen in previous seasons, but there are tweaks to them. There are things that have changed to, yeah. to drive the narrative, Absolutely. to drive the mood, to drive the period, to drive the characters. That's right. I mean, things like the, uh, the, the let's call it the maturing of, of Princess Margaret, for example. You know, from her, her Tony and Roddy days, mm. she still has a bit of a rebel streak, but she's settling down, but settling down in in uh, decorative terms, in ways that wouldn't suit Buckingham Palace. You know, we keep her separate. So she she has this fabulous sort of aubergine-coloured bedroom that uh, 
works well as a kind of counterpoint and 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 equivalent really to to the the pink dress that she wears uh, when she goes off to meet Peter Townsend. That, oh, so we were me in tears in a minute. Uh, we were, we oh. were, we were. The whole set was led by Amy's dress. That's amazing. Mm. Have you got a favourite set from season five? I think my favourite ones are always the ones that I don't know, the ones that represent the biggest challenge, and then at the end of it, we think. God, we got away with it. <laughs> what was so that? The, I mean, the, the the burning down of Windsor Castle for a start was something of a challenge, mm-hmm. um, and the fact that um, Britannia expanded, I should think, sixfold from previous seasons. So Britannia was spread over a backlot set, two sound stages full of scenery, a real boat for all the understuff where Philip goes and taps wow. instruments and things. And then it is placed digitally in the landscape, the seascape. So, um, yeah, I suppose there are five or six different ways of conveying Britannia. And so the challenge there was to make it all feel like one thing. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing that I always find kind of blows my mind slightly is the idea that you could have an actor walking down a corridor somewhere yeah, and then they walk into a room and that could be in two different parts of the country. That's right. I was Only yesterday I was explaining to a director that if you go up that staircase and make a right, you'll finish up 20 miles north of here somewhere else. <laughs> That's um, amazing. And it's uh, over five seasons, the, the directors have obeyed that kind of... Instru- <laughs> it's the only instruction I ever give uh, directors. But it kind of works because they know that it's going to make a whole world in the end. When, you know, if uh, Tony Blair or whatever, or John Major turns right somewhere, they'll finish up somewhere else. That's, it's like it's like some kind of TARDIS. I love it. It is. So, it is so indeed, great. yeah. But the wonderful thing about The Crown is that the marriage of those two things of sets and locations yeah are they of equal importance would you say do they because you know there's I you are in real are. places i think they are yeah i mean we have to um we go to some pretty spectacular locations and therefore we have to build sets that are equal to those so the sets are inevitably big and expensive but also at the same time it's pointless going along uh, going to a location to shoot something small you yeah. know so so we tend to build things like that and things where emotional intimate intimate stuff happens then it's it's useful to have to have built it you know to to contain it yeah where you know there's less chance of um of paparazzi and public yeah um, that's finding out where we are yeah that must be hard yeah yeah harder and harder well it's a good it's great for me because you know people will say you know we we need to build this and i think yeah great let's build it because it's always a, a bonus for me so yeah to build something rather than schlep off and find a location that <laughs> yeah. doesn't work compare it to a location that works a bit better and then yeah. eventually you do find the right location but you know they work equally they work equally and they work um in balance with one another i hope what would you say has in terms of location uh had the biggest transformation this season Is there- um that has to be Windsor. That has to be Windsor for, on account of burning it down, uh, which How is a tragic it? thing to have to do. Well, we I decided in, at the beginning and um, everybody agreed that it would be a good idea to, to take the biggest room that we had used in Windsor and the one in which we'd had the most emotional involvement, mm-hmm. therefore the one where Elizabeth and Philip, when in the days when they were... Olivia and Tobias uh, were trying to persuade um, Josh and Emma to stay together. 
um, and it's also contained birthday parties, it's contained all sorts of scenes that have become pretty important. So yeah. we thought, and just because it happens to be the biggest set as well, this would be the great one to burn down. It also has some very distinctive features. It has some wonderful sort of um, spiral sort of um, barley twist columns in it. At first I thought, dare we ask the location to make it look as if their location has burned down. And then I didn't even posit that idea. I thought, you know, that idea stayed in my head. And then I thought, we, we, what we need to do is build it. So we were able to take this perfect thing in Burley House, this perfect environment, and build a burnt-out replica of it. Um, because it had such distinctive features, we were able to have sort of gnarled and broken versions of them and um, chandeliers that had fallen and things like that. So we were able to build this really unpleasant... And also, it needed to be a wet environment as well because you can't really ask that of a location because if the roof's caved in and the fire brigade have been there, it's inevitably going to be full of puddles as well. Let's talk about episode six, A Party of House. Now, in this episode, we not only go back in time, but we also go to Russia. Where do you start with something like that? I think, again, I started off with the detail of the of the Romanovs being woken up prior to their tragic end. Mm. And their sleeping arrangements were closely observed and closely replicated. I was always on the lookout for the sort of downhillness to the basement and always on the lookout for staircases and confined spaces where they could be pushed and directed and prodded. And we finished up actually building the basement itself on account of what happens in it. Mm. That's not something you can do on location. And also something you can't find on location because every basement in the world is being used for something else. So uh, we wanted ours to be the basement of Ipatiev House 100 years ago. And so we um, we built it on the soundstage, weirdly, next to Princess Margaret's bedroom. It's an odd thing, those juxtapositions yeah. that the schedule forces you into. It was sandwiched between Princess Margaret's bedroom and the interior of an aeroplane. Wow. <laughs> yeah. you know, we talked about collaboration and about how everyone has a voice, really, to contribute to things. And how close, if at all, do you work with the cast? I personally barely have time to. I've known Imelda before. We've done a lot of things together. Yeah. Uh, the first thing we worked on was Ken Branagh's film, Peter's Friends, 30 years ago wow. in the very house where we shoot the audience room scenes. No. So there was a certain shared memory of that. But I have time to kind of get to know their likes and dislikes, get to know what they might want. But I'm with five directors and five blocks on the go. I'm, I'm barely ever there. I try to be there for the opening when you set, but I'm barely ever there otherwise. The season overall feels a lot darker, kind of thematically, but also visually than previous seasons as well. Is that a fair comment? That's a fair comment. And it was a conscious thing, but we didn't push it too far. Mm. You know, I talked about the sudden realisation at the end of season four that things were getting a bit seasonal and that we were about to enter autumn. Mm. And one of the best things I saw on TV during lockdown was a really wonderful production of um, Uncle Vanya. And so Ipatiev House did become a bit Chekhovian. <laughs> You know, I took colours from it and I started doing a bit of Chekhov research and Amy and I started looking about it. And funnily enough, Amy watched that too, that same production. Um, you mentioned it briefly earlier about the idea of Bradford becoming Russia. Yes. Um, in the yes. 1990s. Yeah. What's the journey of that? You know, from where are we going to shoot it? How are we going to shoot it? 
and then to our wonderful location scout peter gray went to bradford thinking it would be a good idea and he also went to various other places i think he went to dundee Mm -hmm. he went to glasgow bradford felt the most containable and also it happened to be close, close enough to another part of Yorkshire where we were shooting a patty of house and a third part of Yorkshire where we were shooting the interiors of um, the Kremlin. Yeah. So it all came together as a package. Because it was in the same part of the world, it had a bit of, for want of a less pretentious word, terroir about it, <laughs> that, uh, that Yorkshire could become our Russia, and it did. And the, the, the desaturated colours and the returning to a place called Duncan Park in the very north of Yorkshire where I shot a show called Parade's End. I remembered it and I remembered the sort of coal-dusted, almost bleakness about it, but it Mm. also has a weird charm when you're Mm. actually there. But uh, I thought that bleakness together with Frank Lamb's lighting would make a wonderful um, Epatia of House and a, and a ghastly opening to, to that episode. Yeah. And again, that's another example of, of a craziness that happened, that, that inside Epatia of House there was this absolutely beautiful room that we could turn into a bedroom. It's actually a dining room. And the schedule needed a scene in Windsor Castle with Elizabeth. So we shot it there. So inside a patio of house, there's a little bit of Windsor Castle. Great, I love it. What's it like, though, in terms of, you know, on a design side of things, being able to span decades? It sometimes becomes a bit bewildering, and I'm getting a hell of a lot better at delegating. (laughs) Because the other wonderful thing is that I've had the same team throughout the whole thing, and um, they all know the way I think, and so I'm better able to delegate than I ever used to be. Mm. I'm less frustrated about not being there than I used to be, yeah. I love the, the what you were talking about earlier about watching Chekhov and, and another piece of creativity has inspired you, your yes. design mind for your own production. That's lovely to think about, particularly with uh, different cultures. What does your research kind of normally involve? Um, I like watch that? a lot of films, actually, because mm-hmm. although I do a lot of research in books, it's films that show things briefly. It's films that need to show things in 30 seconds that a book would take several pages to describe. And we've only got a few seconds to establish things. So things like, um, it's not a very good film by Hitchcock standards, but Torn Curtain, um, the minute they they went into the sort of Eastern Bloc, things became desaturated and browner. And I thought, well, that's a good way to go. Let's try that. Yeah. Yeah. And it did work because we had to establish things pretty swiftly. Yeah. Mm. Season six has been done right now. Yeah. And it's that's it. How yeah. does that feel? You know, it it's feels, like, I feel very sad. <laughs> My body feels relieved. <laughs> My brain is extremely sad. Before we wrap up on this episode, I caught up again with director Christian Schroho to find out what moment from episode six he was most proud of. that's a big exhale I mean there's so much in this episode well I have to say there's quite a few moments that I really really like Um, I really love the the big scene between Philip and Elizabeth at the very end of the episode I got COVID when we shot on season 5 so I had we had to stop filming but then it couldn't be stopped for 10 days yeah so my colleague, Maya Atuki, took over and directed a few scenes. And then my first AD, Finn McGrath, 
did a few scenes and I directed over the phone. So yeah. at, in my living room, I would have two monitors being on the phone. But we had to leave like big scenes where a lot of acting was involved for later. So I think Jonathan's and um, Imelda's big scene at the end was one of the last I did for that episode um, before we wrapped. I just loved that day doing this scene which is so emotional and yeah. there's so much anger and so much misunderstanding and then understanding and it's I get his point and that's what always interests me most that there's a conflict but you understand both parties mm -hmm. involved that's what what I love probably the most about the crown as a director having those long scenes with two or three actors and nothing else it's just them it's the performance it's the writing Theatrical, the, isn't it? It's it's very theatrical. And very often when you read the writing, the conflicts are not so they never shout, they they never they never slap each other. It's 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 and a lot of emotions stay stay behind. That's a that's a great challenge and that's probably what I love the most as a director. And I think in this scene it went really well. I'm Edith Bowman and I'd like to give special thanks to our guests on this episode. Christian Schwocho, Annie Salzberger, Peter Morgan and Martin Childs. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and Something Else in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join us next time as we go behind the scenes of episode seven of season five titled No Woman's Land. BBC journalist Martin Bashir is willing to go to any lengths to secure the scoop of a lifetime. But will his deception convince Diana to tell all? But why would she talk to us? The Yanks can fly her around the world and pay millions into a charity of her choice. What can we offer her? Sausage rolls from the BBC canteen. <laughs> but that's the point. The BBC canteen. Not CBS or ABC, the National Church. Trustworthy. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.